If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can open to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be sitting today. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, but that's where our main text is this morning. Let's just pray before we, we dig into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, as we open your Word, we thank you that it is living, that it is active. Father, we thank you that it is sharp, that it convicts us and exhorts us, and that through your spirit, you speak to us through your word, and Lord, that all of it is done in love. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can freely open your word. We thank you that we can freely study it and glean from it. And Lord, I ask now that through the power of your spirit, that you would teach us this morning, that you would convict us of the things that we need to be convicted of, and that you would encourage us in the areas that we need it. We thank you for being such a loving and gracious father, and we thank you for the privilege of your word. Work in our hearts now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are guests with us this morning, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount right now, and we've been looking at the Beatitudes, and we are in Matthew 5, verse 6. We are on our fourth Beatitude this morning, where Jesus says in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. And so we're going to spend our morning together unpacking that and looking at that. But before we do, I just wanted to remind you, as I have most weeks, that the Beatitudes, we, we can't look at the Beatitudes as individual commands from Jesus. They are not silos unto themselves, but one leads into the other. We started with being poor in spirit, right? And we said that to be poor in spirit means that you recognize that you are bankrupt before a holy God, and there's nothing that you can do about it lest Jesus saves you. And when you are poor in spirit, the right response to recognizing your bankruptcy before God is to mourn is to mourn over your brokenness, to mourn over your sinfulness, to mourn over that which separates you from the Lord and King. And when you mourn rightly, you will not be puffed up. You will not be prideful. It leads to a meekness that you walk in, recognizing that it is only through Christ that you have been saved, and it is a gift from God, not of your own doing. And then that leads into this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When we recognize that we are bankrupt before God, that we are poor in spirit, we hunger and we thirst to be right with him. And so these each beatitude bleeds into the other, and it makes up this whole picture of a Christian character, of a Christian individual. They are not silos unto themselves. And as I was preparing for this message this morning, and as I was studying and praying and reflecting this week, I realized that there's this underlying question to every single one of the Beatitudes. But it struck me this week as I was reflecting on the reality of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And it's this reality, this question around the supremacy of God and what the supremacy of God means in our hearts and in our minds. 
The question for every single one of us is, is God supreme? Is God supreme in your life? Do you view him as supreme in the world and in all of creation? That is the underlying question behind all of these because how vital God is in the mind of an individual, how vital God is in the mind of a church, how vital he is in the mind of a nation will determine how vigorously, if at all, you or we as a church or our nation will hunger and will thirst for righteousness. Because righteousness fundamentally means being in right standing. And so if we view God as supreme, as all-important, as everything, we will long for nothing more than to be in right standing with him. We will hunger and we will thirst for righteousness. Your and my and all of our view of the supremacy of God will determine the depth of desire that we have to be right with him. Our depth of desire for righteousness is reflective of our depth of desire for God. They are one and the same. There are some beautiful pictures from the Psalms that we see of men and just longing and desiring and hungering and thirsting after God. In Psalm 42, verse 1 to 2, David writes these beautiful words. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before the Lord? This was a time when David had been cast out. He couldn't go to the sanctuary. He couldn't worship with God because at that time you could only worship God in the sanctuary. And David's response to that is, as a deer pants for flowing streams, as a deer thirsts, so I thirst for God. I long to be with you, Lord. There's a man that has a high view of the supremacy of God. He has a, a massive desire for the Lord. We see some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture in Psalm 63, verse 1 to 8, of what it means to desire after God. The psalmist says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. These are beautiful words from the psalmist that give us a picture of what it means to hunger and thirst after God. Scott, I'm earnestly seeking you. My very soul is thirsty for you. I am faint as though I'm in a desert and there's no water when I'm not near you. He recognizes that God is life, God is everything, God is supreme. And his words reflect that reality that is in his heart. You see, one of those realities is that an individual does not care 
if they are in right standing with another person, or in this case with God, if they don't desire a relationship with that person. You don't care if you're in right standing with another person, if you don't desire to be friends with them. It's not important to you. And so the question is, do we desire God? Because our desire for God will determine how much we desire righteousness. There's a book by a man named David Wells that's called Losing Our Virtue. And in this book, David Wells' main argument is that when individuals or when cultures lose our understanding of God, and so that means the supremacy of God, the the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the justice of God, when we start to lose all of these attributes of God, what happens is when that diminishes, so does objective morality. When your view of God diminishes, so does objective morality. An accurate understanding of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is not. And if there is no objective morality, then moral standards start to disappear. And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And as moral standards disappear, so does this sense of guilt and shame that we have. Which God's word would call having a seared conscience. Or in the language of the Beatitudes, we start to fail to see that we are poor in spirit. We start to fail to see that we are bankrupt before God and respond rightly with mourning and hungering and thirsting to be back in right relationship with him. See, there's this this interesting thing that in cultures where God or, or even a false deity is viewed as supreme, There is this natural tendency in human beings to want to be in right standing with that supreme being. Or at least they feel guilt or conviction when they know that they're not. But in our culture, where the view of God has so greatly diminished, the natural man largely no longer possesses any desire to be right with him. It's not important. Now, of course, I say all of this with the caveat that one can only be truly right with God in faith with Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. But there is a reality that occurs in cultures where Christianity is dominant that others who are not truly saved still have some pull towards wanting to be right with God, all the while wanting to keep their own autonomy. But what individuals don't realize is where there is a diminished view of God, where there is a diminished view of God that is present in your life, where there is a diminished view of God present in culture, there is this lack of desire for him, there is a significant side effect that happens. And culture doesn't realize it. And at times, followers of Christ can be blind to it. And it is a difficult spot for created beings to be in when we no longer desire God. You see, our culture outside of the church has largely done what Paul says in Romans. Our culture, thinking it is wise, have become fools, exchanging the glory of God for images, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And the thing is, they don't realize this causes a big problem. Beyond the obvious problem of not giving the one who created us the glory that he is due, 
We see all around us in this new morality that is growing up in our culture, that is driving our culture, one of the penalties of the error that God decrees when you turn your back on him. But beyond that, the big problem that this causes, beyond the obvious fact that every, is the fact that every individual hungers and thirsts. This is the big problem that is caused when our view of God is diminished, when the view of the supremacy of God is diminished. We may push God aside and say, I don't want him, but the problem is that every single person still has hungers and still has thirsts. Those don't go away when you reduce your view of God. You see, a reduced view of God or a denial that he exists altogether does not change the fact that he created us and, he, and does not change the fact of how he created us. You see, we were created to worship. We were created to have hungers. We were created to have thirsts. And these hungers and these thirsts were made to be ultimately satisfied and fulfilled in him. And so when you remove him as the ultimate source of life, when you remove him as the ultimate source of satisfaction, you are still left with hunger. You are still left with thirst. You are still left with a desire to worship. But now you only have created things left that are going to try to satisfy you. And if one thing should be obvious when we look at back at the history, of the human race over the history of your own life and my own life it is this that any created thing is not big enough it is not grand enough it is not lovely enough it is not perfect enough it is not sustaining enough to satisfy the hunger and the thirst that is in our hearts because created things were never meant to and yet we constantly try to make them Every single person was made to worship and to hunger and to thirst after the one who created you. When sin entered the world through Adam, every person's appetite went sideways. And we looked to lesser things to quench our thirst, to fill our hunger, but such things are insufficient they will satisfy for a moment, but it doesn't last. That is why there are so many habits and hang-ups and addictions and sideways desires as we keep coming back to lesser things, trying to fill ourselves, trying to justify ourselves, trying to get rid of this hunger and this thirst. This is why addiction is rampant. Addiction is the epitome of never being satisfied, of going back for more and more and more, whether it be drinking or pornography or anything else. The desire to fill our hunger, the desire to fill our thirst is behind most of our sins. It is behind why we gossip. It is behind why we envy. It is behind why we lust. We are trying to fill a hunger and a thirst that only God can fill. Created things can't. And this is what Jesus is speaking to in this beatitude. This is hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know what's so interesting about this beatitude is that Jesus doesn't say, stop hungering and thirsting. He knows that we were made to hunger and thirst. And so he says, no, no, hunger and thirst after the right thing. 
have desires for the right thing. There is this restlessness in the human heart that longs for satisfaction. And there are so many different ways that people are looking for it in unsatisfactory things. Isaiah speaks to this in chapter 55, verse 2. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why are you spending your money on things that can't satisfy? Why are you working so hard to get things that will not fill that hunger and that thirst that you have? Jeremiah, in chapter 2, 12 to 13, it says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah is saying when you transfer God, when you switch God out for lesser things, you are constantly trying to fill a cistern with water, but that cistern has holes, and you can never fill it. You'll never be satisfied. And so we long to be satisfied. And Jesus says, you can be. You can be satisfied when you hunger and you thirst after the right thing. And there's this beautiful picture that we see later in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14, where this word satisfied is used again. And the word satisfied that Jesus uses is often actually used in relation to animals. So Nick will understand this, or anyone else who has a farm. It has to do with the feeding of animals. And, and the word actually means to gorge. And not just feed, but to gorge, to supply in abundance. And it is used in Matthew 14, verse 20. And it's part of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's in verse 20, it says, And they all ate and were satisfied. There's that word. And what does it say right after that? They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Now, is this not an incredible picture of how Jesus satisfies? It is a picture of Jesus' ability to satisfy that hunger that is within us. He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and fish. Right? He, he supplied this abundance for 5,000 people. And that's just the men. right? We know that if you add women and children, it's more than 5,000 people. And he supplied in abundance 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He supplied in abundance what was brought to him. And they were satisfied. That word, they were gorged. They were filled in abundance. And there were 12 baskets left over. It's this picture that it's not like Jesus can just satisfy you like just barely. It's that Jesus can satisfy you fully and there's still so much left over. He satisfies in abundance. And you know what happens? When your hunger is filled, when your thirst is quenched, we you know what happens. 
You stop looking. You stop running into the cupboard and trying to find a snack. You stop looking because you're no longer hungry. You're no longer thirsty. You're satisfied. You have everything that you need. This is a picture of the satisfaction that is found in Christ. It is abundant. It is deep. It is lasting. It is eternal. And you receive this satisfaction when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. As I said, there's this beautiful understanding, this beautiful picture of Jesus' understanding of the human heart. Right? Because the world often teaches, in order to deal with desires, you need to ignore them, you need to suppress them. And yes, there's this reality of self-control that is required in the Christian life, but self-control on its own is not enough to stop desiring after something that you shouldn't. Setting up boundaries in your life is not enough to stop you from going after something that you shouldn't. Human tactics alone will never be enough to stop us from hungering and thirsting after things we shouldn't. We can't starve desire. We need to feed desire, and Jesus says that here. So don't try to starve yourself. Feed yourself satisfy yourself but do it in the right thing don't stop hungering don't stop thirsting that goes against what how you were made but hunger and thirst after what's right we'll only be satisfied when we hunger and thirst after something that is greater than what has been created something that is greater than our current thirsts there's this insight reflected in Thomas Chalmers' famous message, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, and we've talked about this a little bit here before. But what Thomas Chalmers does is he, he, he works to point out that the world, all of creation, it's, it's not worthy of our ultimate affection, and it will ultimately let us down. All the while, God is immensely worthy of our affections. And right hunger and thirst for God, what it does is it displaces those lesser affections that have taken hold or try to take root in our heart. And so the answer to hungering and thirsting rightly is, is not less, it's more. It is more being aimed rightly at the only one who can fill us. Chalmers says this, he says, from the constitution of our nature, meaning from what we can clearly see about how our hearts work, it is obvious that our hearts must have something to lay hold of. We have to have something that we can lay hold of, something that we can desire, something that we can give our affections to, something we can hunger and thirst after. And we must have that thing, that greater thing we must be able to hold on to in order to remove the lesser affections that are in our lives, the things that we're longing for that we shouldn't. Whether it be something of the world, something that's created, something sinful. He says we can't, we can't leave our hearts void. The heart hates to be empty. To leave the heart empty is like ignoring our natural hunger for food. When we hunger for food naturally, we don't leave our stomachs empty. When we're thirsty, we don't ignore that and not go and get water. We fill them up, and the heart is the same way. The heart needs to be satisfied with a greater affection, and the only affection, the only one who is big enough is the Lord.
What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It is to long for right standing with God. And there's two aspects of it. First, righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through Christ and Christ alone, through what he did on the cross, through justification that comes when we trust in the work that he did for us, when he shed his blood for us, when we come to the Lord and we repent of our sinfulness and put our trust in Jesus. We are saved and we are justified and we are made right with God. And then second, it is a personal desire to continue to walk out righteousness. It is not something that happens once when we are saved. It is a continual desire in our heart that I want to walk in righteousness with God. I want to walk longing to do God's will. I want to walk longing to keep God's commandments. It is this desire in our heart that we want nothing more than to be in close relationship with our Heavenly Father. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. It is something that we continually pursue. It is something that we go after. Jesus says in Matthew 6.33 that we're going to look at in a few weeks, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. We pursue it. We go after it. We seek it. It is a continual part of the Christian life to long to be righteous with God by following his commands. I want to end just by giving you a couple examples from Scripture of what comes to mind probably readily in a lot of people's hearts when you hear these words hunger and thirst because there's a couple of stories in Scripture where Jesus describes himself very clearly using these words. And one is when he says, I am the bread of life. And the other is when he says, I will give you living water. I will quench your hunger. I'm the bread of life. I will quench your thirst. I will give you living water. In John 6, 26 to 38, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, but not because not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so this was right after the feeding of the 5,000. The crowd saw what Jesus did, and they start to follow him. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent you to who he has sent. So they said to him, then, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? That's a bold question after he just fed 5,000 people. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So this is an example of the human heart. Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. They are satisfied, and they start to follow him, but they don't follow him for the right reason. When John says, not because you saw signs, signs in John mean that it points to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. People weren't following them because of that. The people were following him because their stomachs were full. They had a meal. They enjoyed it. So they're thinking, okay, well, we're going to follow him because he'll just keep feeding us. He'll meet our physical needs. And Jesus says, no, no, you're, you're missing it. You are working for the wrong food. He's trying to teach them that their desires are too small. While you're focusing on the fact that your stomach is hungry, I'm trying to focus you on the fact that there's a greater hunger that you have that needs to be satisfied, and it can only be satisfied through me because I am the bread of life. This is Jesus trying to point people higher than the desires that they naturally have. In John 7, verse 37 to 38, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and says, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This reminds us of another story that we find in John, of a woman at a well. A woman of Samaria, she came to draw water from the well. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, Jesus uses this moment in the natural with this woman who was coming out to get water because she was thirsty. But Jesus knew that there was more of a story there because, yes, she had a, a natural thirst for water. But more than that, she had this deep hunger and this deep thirst that needed to be satisfied because Jesus goes on to explain this woman's background. And we see that this woman, all through her life, was constantly trying to justify herself through men. She'd had several men. She'd had several husbands. 
and currently she was with a man who was not her husband. She was trying to find satisfaction in men, in relationship, and it just wasn't working. And Jesus was trying to show her, okay, you have a desire that you will not be able to fill through these things, but I have living water that I can give you, and you will be satisfied, not just now, but in eternity, so you don't have to chase after these lesser things that are constantly hurting you. He's lifting her eyes to see the glory of what he can do in a person's life when they trust in him. You see, Jesus doesn't tell us to stop hungering. He doesn't tell us to stop thirsting. He gets a hold of our lives. He gets a hold of our hearts. And he repurposes that hunger and that thirst. So that we hunger and desire for righteousness. He fills us. He is the bread of life. He quenches our thirst. He is living water. He provides our righteousness through his work on the cross. In every need that we have. Our Lord, our King, our Savior, he satisfies. Are we chasing after lesser things? Even after coming to him, are we chasing after lesser things? Not trusting that all that we need can be found in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to start by recognizing your supremacy. I want to recognize that you are king over all. Lord, I want to recognize that every single breath that I take is because you've put it in my lungs. Every moment that I live, every opportunity that I have to raise my children, every opportunity that I have to teach, every opportunity I have to open your word is only because of your grace, because you've given it to me, because you've counted every single one of our days. That is how supreme you are. You know all of the days of our life. You know what you have given us. Father, may our, our view of your supremacy be so great that we can never fully grasp who you are. Help us to grasp as much as our minds can get and get it into our hearts, Father, so that we long for nothing more than to be satisfied in you, so that we long for nothing more to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Father, I pray for all those here this morning who are chasing after lesser desires, who are chasing after things, maybe now, maybe they've been chasing after things for years, just hoping it's going to finally satisfy me. It's going to finally quench that thirst. It's going to finally fill that hunger. God, would you show them that it's not, that there's one thing in all of creation that can satisfy our ultimate hungers and thirst, and it is you. And God, I pray that you would open blind eyes this morning to see that. Father, I pray that you would break off addiction as we lift our eyes to you father i pray that you would break off sin and all those silly things that we chase after 
Father, for those who have grown weary, refresh them. You have said, Jesus, that I am gentle, I am lowly. Some of us just need refreshing this morning. We've lost our, the grandness of a view of you. Restore it, God, gently to us. Oh, God, but God, let us see. Let us see and let us bask in how beautiful you are. Knowing that when we do that, we will be satisfied. Our restless hearts will be restless no longer. Father, that is my hope for every person here, that they could rest in you, that they could know you are all they need. Lord, I, I pray that you would minister to hearts now through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.